Please stand together now as we look to read the scripture reading for today found in Matthew, verses 27 through 34. And Jesus, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. And they were going, and as they, as they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon man, demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowd marveled, saying, Never has anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy New Year. So how many people here have made some New Year's resolutions? We have some at least. Has anyone here been successful and benefited in the past from making New Year's resolutions? Again, we have some. If you hadn't made any New Year's resolutions yet, do you plan on making any New Year's resolutions this year? Uh, It is day one, you still have time, and perhaps after this morning you'll feel um, encouraged to do so. No, that isn't what our sermon today is going to be about. We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, yet as it is New Year's Day, and this is a traditional day for the making of resolutions, it is worth taking a few minutes to discuss. I will admit up front, I am not one to make New Year's resolutions. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that making resolutions can be used as a tool to help us break bad habits or to strive toward greater faithfulness in our lives. I just don't think that we need to wait for a special day that only comes once a year to either stop or begin to do something that is important in our life. Today is always the best day to make a better choice in your life and to work towards a higher goal. You will not find a better day than today, and I will say that every day, No better day than today to take some time to evaluate your life. Like me, if you do that, you will no doubt find a number of things that you want to change. Things that you feel need to change. Those could be matters of self-discipline, of physical health, spiritual health, or life goals, or financial goals. That kind of self-evaluation can really feel overwhelming of just all the things in your life that you would like to be different. But I want to make just a couple of, of comments, of commendations in this regard. 
and things that do not require a new year for you to implement these in your life. So number one, discern between those things that would be nice and those things that are necessary, and then prioritize accordingly. And then number two, learn to view life holistically. So we'll talk just a, briefly about what I mean by those. So for the first one, when you get a handle on those things that are necessary in your life, do them. If it is necessary that you stop doing something or reading or watching something or associating with someone or something, then do it. If it is necessary, then cut it out of your life or at a minimum chart a path to remove it from your life moving forward. Don't waste the precious life that God has given you by giving your time and energy to those things that are harmful to you. If on the other hand, you realize there are things that you need to add into your life, or perhaps transition your life toward, then do that. Get a vision of where you need to be and chart a path to get there. Determine what has held you back to this point from achieving those things that you know are necessary in your life and take steps to remove those obstacles. You may need help in setting that path and you may need accountability in removing those obstacles and taking those steps and, and that is okay. None of us are meant to walk this narrow path alone. Use the family here in this church that God has given you to help encourage you and hold you accountable. So first focus on those things that are most needed. And when those things that are most needed have been addressed, and then reevaluate. And then whatever becomes the most needed thing then, focus on that and move forward, taking steps in the right direction to live the kind of life that you feel God calls you to. Well, the second, second thing, the learn to live holistically. What I mean by that is to let go of the modern notion that you have a Christian part of your life and a work or school part of your life and a leisure part of your life, etc. We are not designed to be compartmental beings. We are Christians. Everything that we do is meant to be an act of worship to our God. There is no sphere of our life that is separated from that highest purpose. Whether we eat or drink, sleep or wake, rise or fall, work or play, we are to do all to the glory of God. There is no division between what is sacred and what is secular. That is a lie. It doesn't exist. This is God's world. We are a part of God's kingdom. Everything is sacred, and everything is ours in Christ. So when you make resolutions, be that today or any day, make them as a Christian. If that resolution is to lose weight and to get into better shape, then do that as a Christian not for vain glory, but to honor God and the gift of health that he has given you. Just don't focus on the body to the destruction of the soul. If you make a resolution concerning finances, home improvement, vocation, make them as a Christian, not to build your kingdom, but as part of the kingdom of Christ. Work to the glory of God. Build wealth to the glory of God as a blessing to his people and as an inheritance to your children. 
Don't separate the important responsibilities of your life one from another. Consider how they all contribute to a godly and faithful life and bring the whole of your life in line with the purpose toward faithfulness to the call of Christ and toward building his kingdom on this earth. Jonathan Edwards made a long list of resolutions that he endeavored to live out, and he reminded himself of these resolutions regularly. I want to share just a few of them with you this morning. His first resolution was, Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be to most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Resolution number three. Resolved if I shall fall and grow dull, so as a neglect to keep part of, my, of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember, when I come to myself again. So resolutions once broken don't have to be put off again until next year to start again. Resolve, this is number seven of the Jonathan Edwards, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were my last hour of life. That one might hit home a little bit. 22, resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all my power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Just one more, his resolution number 69, resolved always to do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. So these kind of resolutions that Jonathan Edwards made, and he made many, and he added to the list, went to involve the wholeness of his life. These were character desires. These were ambitions towards greater faithfulness, things that would work themselves out in every area of his life. And he did not quit pursuing these resolutions just because he failed for a time. He exercised that great Christian discipline of repenting when we are aware of our sin and our failure and then resolving once again from that moment to walk faithfully. So if you make resolutions this year, and I really think you should consider doing it, whatever you call them and whenever you decide to start them, that you make them as a Christian striving after faithfulness and holiness. If that perspective, if the perspective of bringing everything under the umbrella of Christian faithfulness and holiness, if that keeps you from pursuing those things that you had already thought about pursuing, then perhaps you need to reevaluate your priorities and your resolutions. Life is too short, and this path that we are on is too hard to waste our strength and our time on things that do not matter. We must live intentionally with a purpose and toward a goal. And now, before we turn back to our text in Matthew, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Father, we confess that you are Lord of every day. 
That every day is a gift, every day is an opportunity to walk in faithfulness, not just the beginning of a year or the beginning of a, of a week or the beginning of a month. That today can be the day that we can walk faithfully after our Lord. This moment can be the moment we resolve to repent, to leave behind our sin and leave behind those obstacles in our lives that war against our comfort in Christ and to move in the direction that you have called us. Father, as we look back to the Gospel of Matthew, give us ears to hear your word. May the voice of the preacher fade away and your word stand eternal. May your message pierce the hearts of your people and draw those who do not yet know you to the knowledge of repentance and salvation. Help us to be warned where we need to be warned, encouraged where we need to be encouraged, and awed where we ought to stand in awe with the wonder of our Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as we pick up back in Matthew 9 this morning, we return to just after Jesus had raised, remember Jairus, his, his little girl had died. Uh, he, had, he had come to get Jesus to come back and to heal his daughter. And he went to the house and he healed the daughter. And there was a big commotion because there had been a lot of professional mourners already at the house broadcasting the death of this girl. And then Jesus took her by the hand and walked her out. So we pick up after that wonderful story of life after death. We read in verse 27, And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Well, these two particular blind men are not attested to in the other synoptic Gospels. Yes, those, the other Gospels include an account that sounds very similar to this, yet they match more closely with one that Matthew includes later on in chapter 20. Of course, that has caused a number of commentators to conclude that Matthew is simply here doubling up on a story, that he's telling the same story twice in different points of his Gospel, in order to give significance to a particular narrative or provide evidence for a theological emphasis. But I would have to disagree with those notions, even if they came from much more learned men than myself. We don't need to assume that Matthew had to take and repeat an event twice in his gospel. Jesus healed all kinds of sickness and maladies everywhere he went in this region. We should expect that there would be very similar accounts of people coming to Jesus for healing and receiving what they needed. It should be our expectation that this would be a repeated theme. Because once somebody has heard that Jesus healed the blindness of someone else, anyone else who is blind is going to find their way to Jesus. 
And it shouldn't even shock us that they used the same words. If you had heard that somebody had cried out for mercy from the son of David and they received their sight, if you needed your sight, you would go and say the same thing to find the same man and hope and pray for the same result. So that shouldn't surprise us at all that in the Gospels we see many accounts of things that are very similar. Christ went around teaching the same kinds of things, healing the same kinds of things, dealing with demons in the same kind of ways all throughout this region. Well, clearly these, these men had heard what Jesus had done for others. And no doubt being in such a proximity to him in Capernaum, they would have even have heard that he had raised the dead to life. So they followed him. They wanted to be near him. Their cries made it clear that they knew who Jesus was. They called him the son of David. That term is loaded with messianic expectation and significance. It's not some mere acknowledgement that through his adopted father Joseph that he's a physical descendant of David. That's not what is being communicated here. To call someone the son of David in this culture, in this time, with the heightened messianic expectation and hope that the people longed for, was to name him the long-awaited Messiah. Was to claim that he was the long-promised king to sit on the throne of David. They heard what Jesus had done and they believed that he was in fact the one who would be sent by God to bring healing and salvation to his people. And so naturally, they followed him and they cried out as they followed him, Son of David, have mercy on us. Well, we might ask, how could these men be so sure that Jesus was in fact the Messiah? Well, as I said, at this point in time, the Jewish people were very heightened in their, in their looking out for the Messiah. The, the desire for it, the, the messianic fervor was high. The expectations were high. They were very, very familiar with the promises that accompanied the coming of God's kingdom and God's Messiah. We look at Isaiah 35, 4-6. We read there, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So when the dead are raised to life, you can be sure that God is uniquely at work among his people. When the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute sing, the lame leap, you can be sure that God himself has come to his people. The Messiah of God has come bringing salvation. Well, we have every reason to expect that these two blind men are not the first blind men to receive sight at the hands of the Lord. And the mute man that we'll see in just a few verses later is probably not the first mute to regain his voice. Remember, Jesus went around performing all these kinds of miracles everywhere he went. There would have been lots of people who were blind or suffering with muteness or other ailments like that. He would have healed many of them by now. 
But I think that Matthew includes these specific healings grouped together in this one place because he desires to draw our attention naturally back to the messianic expectation found in Isaiah. It is meant to focus our attention there and to make it obvious about what is happening, about what Christ is proclaiming as he goes and heals all these sickness and ailments. Well, as we have seen, the two blind men knew who Jesus was, and they believed that he would heal them. And yet, Jesus tested and then questioned their faith. Read on in verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Well, if you've been paying attention along our journey through Matthew to this point, you know that, that Jesus very easily could have pronounced healing upon these men from a distance as he was walking. He didn't even need to stop in his journey. He didn't even need to garner more attention and allow people to gather and press in upon him. He could have simply looked at them and pronounced their healing. And yet that isn't what he did. We have no indication that Jesus paid these men any attention until the blind men followed him and pushed their way into the home where he was staying. They had to persist in following Jesus. So their faith was tested by not receiving what they desired the first time that they asked for it. And we get the picture that it wasn't just one time that they cried out to Jesus as they followed him. So it would have been a journey probably of a number of blocks across town. They would have been crying out incessantly, Son of David, have mercy! Son of David, have mercy! And yet Jesus did not acknowledge them until they entered the house. Even though the receiving of sight to the blind was something that was promised at the arrival of God's Messiah. And beloved, we would do well to remember and to emulate the persistence of these blind men. God often does not immediately give us what we desire, even if what we desire is good for us, or even if what we desire has been promised for us. He often delays until we have persisted in prayer, until we have persisted in pursuing him. Let this be a reminder to us that if we have things that we truly desire, and we acknowledge that only God can provide, then we ought to persist in prayer until either God grants us our heart's desire, or he has shown us that he has other plans for our life. God's answer to prayer is often not just yes or no, but often not yet. Other times, he withholds something we desire because he wants us to think bigger, that he wants us to ask more of him. Sometimes we don't receive what we desire from God because we are asking for less than he has already determined to give us. Our hopes from God need to match his desire to bless. And so, we ought to pray that God would direct the desires of our heart, not simply that he would just give us the desires of our heart. 
See the difference between there. Pray that God would direct the desires of our hearts, not just give us what we currently desire. Regardless, we must not give up so easily when we seek mercy from God. These blind men did not instantly receive the results they sought. Jesus did not acknowledge their faith and acknowledge their condition and turn right away and heal them. He made them wander in the darkness behind him. He made them have to push their way through the crowds and push their way into the house before he responded to their cries and healed them. What to our modern sensibilities almost seems like cruelty to the disabled was rather a test of their faith. A test that would be repeated once again before Jesus would heal them. When Jesus finally responded to them, he asked them if they actually believed that he could heal them. As if their persistence in pursuing him through the streets and following him into the house was not evidence enough. Jesus asked them if they believed that he could heal. And their simple response was, yes, Lord. Moving on to verse 29 and 30. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Mercifully, Jesus gave those men what they desired from him. He even went about it in a way that showed specific care to somebody in their condition. They could not see, so he allowed their other senses to experience the miracle of healing. He offered his healing touch, and their eyes were opened. If you recall just a a few verses earlier, the woman with a bleeding hemorrhage was told that her faith had saved her. And the faith of these men was acknowledged in their healing as well. But this time, not as the means of their aid, but that Jesus would do for them as they believed he could do for them. That according to their faith, it was done. These two blind men believed that Jesus would do what the Messiah was promised to do. They believed that just as Jesus desired mercy rather than sacrifice, remember we got to go a little bit earlier in the chapter, that's, that's what he said, he desired mercy rather than sacrifice, that if that was true of what Jesus desired from others, that he would be merciful to them. So they believed and they received mercy. Continuing in verse 30 and 31, and their eyes were opened And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But when they went away, and spread his fame throughout all that district. Of course, this isn't the first time that Jesus charges somebody to tell nobody after he has healed them. But this is the first time that he has been this stern in his request. This warning of Jesus actually comes across as a bit harsh. They were warned, they were scolded by Jesus. Of course, that begs the question, why? We get some help in answering that question by the timing and location of where Jesus actually healed these men. I've said before that Jesus tested their faith by making them follow him through the streets and into this house. That delay and change of location allowed for the healing of these blind men to be done in secret. 
outside of the, or away from the watching eyes of the Pharisees and the crowds. Of course, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would have expected these events to remain hidden. There would have been no way for two known blind men in a city the size of Capernaum to be healed, to receive their sight, and for people not to hear about it. There was no way that that would have happened. So Jesus' reasoning can't just be that he was permanently trying to hide this healing, especially when he had healed so many publicly before. So it has to be something else. While it is possible that Jesus just wanted to delay just for a a little bit the extra fervor that would come from these men's healing so that he could sneak out of Capernaum, I think something else is more likely. Remember the cry of these men as they follow Jesus. They made a claim about him, a claim that Jesus did not acknowledge or interact with publicly. They named him the son of David. Again, that very clear messianic designation. So it isn't just that these men would have gone out saying that this man Jesus had healed them. There was countless people at this point in time that were able to wander around Capernaum saying this man Jesus healed me. It's how they would have said it. It's the claims that they would have made as they talked about their healing from Jesus and how it would have caused the people to respond. At this point in his ministry, Jesus wasn't trying to build upon his messianic mantle. He wasn't trying to stir up a revolution simply because he was the legitimate heir to the throne of David. He had no intention of going up and challenging Herod for the throne. In fact, he would resist and flee from the attempts of people as they crowded around him and saw his power when they would try to make him king by force. So I think these men were warned so harshly, more harshly than others because their message would have been filled with messianic fulfillment. And their proclamation of their healing would have served to inflame the misunderstood and misguided expectations of the people about what would happen now that God's chosen servant had arrived. You can make no mistake, Jesus was very clear who he was during his earthly ministry. He was very clear about where he came from. He was very clear about what that meant for the people. And yet... He communicated much of that in a way that would not click together in the minds of his disciples until later on, after his resurrection. He was the Messiah, yet the salvation he brought was not according to the common expectations of that age. And he often spoke to the people in parables, specifically saying that he did so so that they would not hear and understand. Of course, as happened at other times when Jesus pressed somebody he had healed for their silence, those who had been healed did not keep quiet. And his fame grew and spread throughout all that region. And as that grew, so too would the tension between him and the religious leaders of Israel. Continue in Matthew 9, 32. 
As they were going away, behold, the demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Well, as amazing as it is that Jesus freed this man from demon oppression, that miracle is merely the context for Matthew to focus on what he finds of most importance in this encounter. And that would be the response from the people and the response from the Pharisees. We can't say much about this demon-possessed man other than that his ailment was due to the oppression from the demon rather than something physical. And certainly Jesus, the eternal Son of God, could tell the difference between a common physical condition and a physical condition that are a physical manifestation of spiritual oppression. In fact, this is something that all the people of this era were quite familiar with. This was something that seems like it was obvious to everybody who saw him. The people saw and understood the signs and the effects of both spiritual and physical malady. They were both common in this time. Of course, what was much less common was somebody who had authority and power over both of them. Matthew 9.33 and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Of course, if they were simply talking about a mute man who was demon-oppressed being freed from the demon, or even the healings before that, just a, a few of the healings that Jesus had done, we might be tempted to think that this, this crowd was using hyperbole, but that what they were witnessing wasn't really as impressive as it sounds. But why would I say that? Because there were many miracles performed among the people of God before the Messiah came. There were big, obvious, truly wonderful miracles performed by the hand of God among his people throughout their history. There were sick people who were healed. There were dead who were brought back to life. The sun even stopped at the height of the sky for an entire day to help out God's people on the battlefield. That's not to mention the great miracles that humbled Egypt, the mightiest nation in the land, and brought Israel out of slavery and powerfully into the promised land. And yet, even when God used men of old to perform wondrous signs, it was clear that just as their words had come from God, so too did their power to perform these wonders and signs come from God. They were just vessels. The authority was not their own. In Jesus, the nation saw signs and wonders after sign and wonder. Not just one here or there. Not just one big show and then generations of quiet. But sign after sign after sign. And with Jesus, these signs and wonders were performed by his authority. He was not merely a vessel speaking words that he has been given, but he was speaking the very words of God. And even though many in Israel would not recognize him as such, he was God incarnate. 
He was God dwelling among them. So truly the crowd said that what they had seen in Israel during the earthly life and ministry of Jesus was something that had never before been seen. The crowds recognized that reality and it drove them to awe and wonder. And some, such as these blind men that were healed, were able to read the signs and acknowledge who Jesus really was and what his arrival actually meant. We read in verse 34, But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. The crowds marveled, yet the Pharisees had a very different response to the miracles and the display of Jesus' power where others recognized that this man surely must be the Messiah, the Pharisees were hardened, and they attributed his power to that of demons. Instead of responding in awe and wonder, they blasphemed. Well, before we look at just how evil of a response that is, let's take a moment just to realize that no one who was near to Jesus ever doubted the miracles he performed or the power with which he performed them. That is an important thing to remember. Nobody near Jesus tried to deny that he worked miracles and he, and he performed with power. Not even his greatest critics and enemies could deny the wonders that were so clearly performed before their eyes and before the eyes of the crowds. We need to be careful that we are not influenced by the skeptics of our day. We can't fall prey to that teaching, that false teaching, that tries to promote some kind of sense of meaning to the words of Jesus while simultaneously denying his power and the miracles that surrounded him. The signs and wonders that accompanied Jesus on this earth were both real and necessary. They served a redemptive purpose. Without them, we don't just have a good store. We don't have something that's just as good. Without the signs and wonders of Jesus, we don't have the gospel. As we have mentioned, these signs and wonders that Jesus performed were the proof that he was, in fact, the Messiah of God. The same evidence that Jesus gave his disciple, the disciples of John when they lost their confidence in Jesus as John sat in prison and it didn't go like they expected it to go when the Messiah came. And they, they were sent to Jesus to ask, are you the one? And Jesus pointed him back to the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. So wondrous was it to behold, so plain and so obvious, that not even those who desired the death of Christ could deny the wonder and power at his hands. The first-hand witnesses of these events did not doubt the miracles they saw, and neither should we. So, if even the Pharisees could not deny the works of Christ... They must then either acknowledge him for who he was or come up with an alternate explanation for what everybody was clearly witnessing. Of course, they chose the latter. 
If Jesus wasn't the chosen Messiah of God sent to bring about the salvation of God's elect, then according to the Pharisees, then he must be a demonic agent sent to deceive the people. He must have performed these signs and wonders and commanded evil spirits by the power of the prince of demons. Well, in our passage this morning, we don't get to see Jesus' response. But we do get to see his response when he is very similarly accused in chapter 12. So if you would turn with me to Matthew 12, 22 through 32, just a few pages forward. Matthew 12, 22 through 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, we will get a chance to dive into that passage more deeply when we get there, just a little ways down the road. Suffice to say right now is the accusation of the Pharisees that Jesus performed these signs and wonders through the prince of demons was the ultimate product of the hardness of their heart and their turning against God. The very men that were supposed to be the righteous example for the entire nation of Israel, the men that were supposed to direct the people to God and toward God's kingdom, had ended up instead at war with God and at war with his anointed. They drew the people away from the salvation in God rather than guiding them to it. And for their blasphemy, there would be no forgiveness in this age or in the age to come. So we see in our passage this morning only two real responses to witnessing the power and the wonder of Christ. You either recognize that he is something unlike the world has ever seen and you give glory to God or you harden your heart and convince yourself that the power on display is demonic or evil. If you have witnessed any of the power of Christ in your life or in the life of his people, you have to ask yourself in a very important question. Is Jesus the promised Messiah of God, the salvation of everyone who calls upon his name, or is he a deceiver acting by the power of demons? Is he Messiah 
or demon. Beloved, it is impossible even 2,000 years later to not see the effects of Christ's power and his authority on this earth. We even judge the passing of time by marking the years since his coming. And even when the humanist tries to change the language from the year of our Lord to the common era, they must still answer why time before was counting down and time now is counting upward. That something happened at that point in history 2,000 years ago that changed the way we view time, that changed the way we understand history. Only by being blinded by the lies of the enemy can one be confronted with what Christ has done in history and deny the miraculous nature of his ministry and his provision for his people. Christ did not perform signs and wonders in the privacy of his home with only a few witnesses. He did not do his teaching in in some private place, private hall with only a few people. His life was lived in the eyes of the masses. His miracles attested to even by his fiercest enemies. The world has been changed. Nation after nation has fallen, yet Christ's church remains. She has resisted and overcome attempt after attempt to crush her or to corrupt her and make her useless. Her enemies keep coming. They keep changing their tactics and yet she still goes forth proclaiming the wonders of the gospel and the kingdom of our God. And beloved, you can be confident that no matter what we or our descendants after us face, the church of Christ will continue to stand and thrive as a testament to the faithfulness of our Lord. Nothing and no one can stop what he is doing. Well, if you hear what I'm saying this morning, and you can't think of how you have seen the power of Christ at work in the world today, then perhaps one of your resolutions this year needs to be to open your eyes and see what God is doing among his people and among the nations. Perhaps you need to do a better job of acknowledging the myriad of ways that God has kept you and blessed you and then begin to give him the glory that he deserves. So where do we go from here? Well, first, I think most of us need to be resolved to be more aware of how God is working in our lives, working in the church, and working in the world around us. It is far too easy for us in the culture we live in to live as practical atheists. We say that we believe God is all-powerful. We say that we believe that God is active among men, that we can really do nothing without the power of his spirit, and yet we live as though we are independent and self-sufficient. We live, no matter what we say, we often live as though God is distant and quiet in his dealings with men. Beloved, we must be careful that we don't have the appearance of godliness while denying its power. Second, we would do well to learn from the persistence in which the needy people in the Gospels pursued Jesus. 
We deceive ourselves if we think that we are any less needy than the sickest of those who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. We shame ourselves that we are so quick to give up and move on when we do not immediately receive from God what we have desired and asked for. Perhaps we simply don't desire good enough things. Perhaps the desires of our heart are so insignificant that we can't maintain zeal and a desperation in seeking after them. Or perhaps when it comes down to it, we don't actually believe that God is able or that he would be willing to give us such gifts. We must be more persistent and purposeful in our pursuit of Christ. We must learn to see that everything we need Everything that we could desire is found in him alone. Let that knowledge that it all is found in Christ and Christ alone, let that drive you in desperation to be persistent in prayer. Third, we must be a people of discernment. We need to learn to distinguish what is from God and what is counterfeit. We must learn what is faithful to his word and what is contrary to it. We must learn to embrace what is honoring to him and fight against or flee all that he despises. To love what he, hate, what he loves and to hate what he hates. So beloved, as we move forward in this new year, may we all resolve to grow in wisdom, steadfastness, and faithfulness to our God. Father, we are utterly dependent upon you and powerless without you. Forgive us when we have lived as though we do not need you. Forgive us when we have lived practically as atheists with the words of God and the Spirit of God distant from us, believing our, our actions, our morality, our works are good enough to sustain us. Father, give us a desperation to pursue our Lord, to pursue holiness, to pursue faithfulness, Make the things of this world lose their savor for us. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.